Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Kara Blue Adams. She is the winner of the John Simmons Award for Short Fiction and is an assistant professor of creative writing at Seton Hall University. Her new book is You Never Get It Back, which is published by our friends at University of Iowa Press. Kara, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And Kara, before we talk about your book, I want to ask how have things been going this past couple of years? What is the current climate surrounding COVID like in Brooklyn? And what has it been like to teach creative writing in this environment? Um, it's been a, a wild and interesting time. Um, let's see. So my partner and I are spending time both in Brooklyn and in the Hudson Valley, mm-hmm. um, which is a place we love. Um, and it was also necessitated because we live in Brooklyn in a um, studio apartment that's about 300 square feet. Uh-huh. <laughs> So single room. So there is no way we could both, we're both professors. There's no way we could both be um, talking to our classes in that single room at the same time. So, um, so I spent some of the time out of the city. Um, It was of course, you know, a really challenging time, I think for the city, um, but also a time when people really came together and looked out for their neighbors and their communities in some beautiful and meaningful ways. Um, And I was really inspired too by the way that my students um, handled the transition to online classes in March 2020. You know, we, I think um, it was announced on a Thursday, we were making the transition, we had Friday off to figure that out. And then Monday, (laughs) we hit the ground running. But my students really worked with me collaboratively to just kind of reimagine what a classroom space might be like. And we started doing things like listening to podcasts like mm-hmm. yours um, and watching videos and just thinking about some other possibilities that the move opened up. Um, mm-hmm. So um, obviously wish there wasn't a global pandemic, <laughs> but I have been impressed by people's creativity and resilience. Very good. Thank you very much uh, for that answer. Now let's dive into your excellent new uh, collection, You Never Get It Back. And my first question for you, Kara, did you attend the University of Iowa? I ask this because not only is your book published by the University of Iowa Press, but it opens with a quote by Marilyn Robinson, who was taught there. Yes, and that quote is um, from Housekeeping, one of my very favorite novels. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not attend the University of Iowa. Um, Mm -hmm. I attended Smith College as an undergraduate and went on to get my MFA at the University of Arizona in Tucson Uh in the desert. Yeah. So um, how did the creative writing workshops that you were a part of differ between your undergraduate university and your graduate university and the ones that you're teaching now? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, Well, on the undergraduate level, we had a single workshop Mm. and students applied to get in. So when I applied, um, I guess it was in my junior year, I think 50 students applied for 12 spots. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to get one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wrote my first short story in order to apply to be in the class to learn to write short stories, nice. um, which I think isn't the worst um, the worst introduction to creative writing. Because, mm-hmm. um, of course, a lot of it you learn in community, whether it's in a workshop or a writer's group. 
um, or potentially at least you learn it those ways. But you also learn, I think, just from doing deep reading and from experimenting yourself on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting thrown in in that way was good, I think. Um, and that workshop was wonderful. I think it was my favorite course in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved all of my courses. I always took one additional course every semester. And my advisor would say, I don't advise that you do this. Right. <laughs> and I would say, I know, but I, I just, there's so many classes I want to take. I really just want this one extra class too. And he would reluctantly sign off on it. And, and then less mm-hmm. reluctantly as he saw that I could keep my grades up and do that. Um, but that class was it just sort of um, startling to me as someone who'd studied English literature, which was my major the idea mm-hmm. that writers were living people um, and they might be people I could know um, was really amazing. That was led by Dean Alberelli, who's a, a really terrific short story writer. Um, and that was the only class we had at Smith. It was a very traditional education. So the idea was really pursued things like that mostly on your own time. Um, so I put that aside for a while. And then I actually, um, I worked in the legal field for five years. I worked in immigration law in Boston, thought about going to law school, but I kept taking creative writing workshops um, through Grub Street, a community writing center there. Mm -hmm. And I put together my own writers group with some friends I met in those workshops and we get together and workshop work. And one of them told me about MFA programs, which I had never heard of before. Um, And so I applied to a few programs she was applying to herself, including the one in Arizona. And I think I thought that when I got there, they were really going to teach me how to write, Mm -hmm. you know, just sort of sit down and say, here, here are the answers. (laughs) Um, Here's how dialogue works. Here's how you build a successful character. But of course, the workshop really is conceived of as a different sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The idea is you come together in community with other writers but it's largely time to read and to write and to think um, often on your own. Um, So that was, you know, a a kind of um, time for me to do those things. And I met some really excellent writers, um, some of whom are are still friends and who've published books, who are some of the writers I'm most excited about um, today, actually. Um, But when I set out to teach creative writing, I think I thought about who I was as a student, the things that I loved and enjoyed and needed. And then things that I, you know, I was looking for that maybe I didn't find inside the classroom. And so when I teach my students, I teach undergraduate courses and some graduate courses too. Um, But I've developed some courses on things like dialogue, for example, um, that get pretty specific and lead students through very specific exercises to help them learn some things that I learned through trial and error a little faster. Um, I also teach a class on the linked short story collection because I myself spent many years thinking about how to put together a book and I wanted to help them think that through in a classroom space, mm-hmm. as well as a class on literary editing and publishing that came in part out of my own work as a writer and in part um, out of my work as an editor. I spent about five years as an editor at the Southern Review. Nice. Thank you so much. Did you enjoy living in Tucson? At first, I didn't like it very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came to really love it. I moved there in part because I wanted to try living somewhere unlike anywhere I'd ever lived before. Mm-hmm. And I think coming from the Northeast, my eye was used to green. I was used to a specific kind of season that we think of as seasons in the US. Mm-hmm. So to get used to the desert landscape and the change in season that's a lot more subtle um, and perhaps not quite as visual 
took a little while, but now actually I, I miss the desert a lot. Yeah, that's great. I lived in Tempe for a year and a half and I hated everything about it. Um, <laughs> but it seems like Tucson's a lot better. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you, Kara. Um, let's talk about your first story I met loss the other day. Uh, tell us please about the personification of loss and what inspired the creation of this story. Yeah, um, that is one of the first stories that I wrote mm -hmm. um, in the collection and, you know, sort of in my life as well. Um, I wrote that story while I was working at that law firm in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, so before I'd really done much formal study of creative writing, um, a lot of the stories in the collection, most of them are realist stories, um, but that story isn't. Um, and it comes out of my love of writers like Kafka and Borges and Calvino. Mm -hmm. um, and it just sort of arrived one day, that, that first line. I was alone in my apartment and it came to me and I wrote it down on a, in a notebook physically. And I just wrote the first half of the story, not really knowing what it was going to be. It's sort of unfolded in front of me. Mm -hmm. And then I went to work and then I think it was maybe over a lunch break the second half of the story just sort of arrived as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the story, it's very brief. It personifies loss and the narrator meets loss um, personified and is asked to make a set of clothes for loss. And it becomes a kind of meditation on what we lose and what that means. Um, it was also informed by my love of Donald Barthelme, another sort of wonderful mm -hmm. novelist writer. Excellent. Thank you so much. Friends, this is a good time to mention the Crook's Corner Book Prize, what Pulitzer Prize winner Charles Fraser calls the coolest book prize in the country. Awarded annually for the best debut novel set in the American South, the $5,000 prize is intended to encourage emerging writers, whether published by established publishing houses, small independent publishers, or self-published authors. This year's winner will be chosen by best-selling novelist and poet Ron Rash and will be announced in January 2022. For more information, visit www.crookscornerbookprize.com. Kara, back to this story I met lost the other day. You write of a ceaseless bickering over what constitutes loss. Can you elaborate on this concept for our listeners? Sure, yeah. Um, that was a, a fun part of the story to write because I imagine loss running this operation where everyone's losses are cataloged. And so people then have to decide, well, what is a loss? And you know, when is something, for example, just misplaced and not really lost? Mm -hmm. um, and I think Kafka does this beautifully. He imagines these sort of existential questions in a kind of bureaucratic setting. Um, I just reread The Trial, which does that so brilliantly. Yeah. Um, and so it was sort of fun to bring together those more bureaucratic questions with that kind of existential question of what loss is. Yeah, I love The Trial. And I loved the film uh, of The Trial that Orson Welles did. Um, and a funny aside, I used to manage a corporate bookstore in San Francisco and a gentleman called one time and I guess was put, you know, into the holding system and described our holding system like the castle, um, like Kafka, where, where the guy can never get into the castle. But um, 
Anyway, I always like that story. I have one other question about uh, this story about loss. Um, because we, I like to tie episodes of this podcast together whenever I can, and we have interviewed a couple economists who have written books uh, recently, one from Harvard and one from Yale. I want to ask you, when you write only on Wall Street, can you trade with your losses? What do you mean by this? Initially, um, that line actually read only in Vegas, can you trade with your losses? <laughs> and then um, as I learned about sort of complex debt instruments, <laughs> I, um, I thought, well, actually, maybe Wall Street is um, a better example of a place where you can do that. I, I find um, economic systems endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I took two economics classes at Smith in my senior year, and I actually studied um, bookstores. We had to choose an industry to kind of follow. Nice. Um, so it's just, I, I listen to podcasts and read articles about um, economics. Um, so that's actually a line that changed over time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I used to, um, had a brief career as a financial consultant. And once I realized I was just working in a casino, <laughs> I kind of walked away. <laughs> but yeah, the, the two worlds are very much aligned. Um, Well, thank you, Kara. Listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Kara Blue Adams. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Kara Blue Adams, author of You Never Get It Back, which is published by our friends at the University of Iowa Press. Kara, earlier when we were talking about creative writing workshops, you mentioned um, teaching about linked short stories. So I now want to talk about... uh, how the short stories in this collection are linked. Many of them are about your protagonist, Kate. Characters reemerge. What is the difference between writing a story as a novel and writing a collection of linked short stories that focuses on one character or a small handful of the same characters? Why did you choose to tell this story the way that you did? I love that question. Um, so I'll just say briefly, so the The book is um, 13 stories, all exploring, I think, in various ways, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, the life of one character, Kate Bishop, who grows up in rural New England. She then goes to college and pursues um, a career first as a research scientist researching optical physics, and then um, gives that up to become a writer. Um, And so the book explores, you know, I think various things she loses along the way, Um, an easy intimacy with her family, um, growing up in this kind of bohemian poverty. Um, She moves out of that class and therefore um, perhaps doesn't have such an easy connection with them. It explores a loss of innocence in various ways. It explores people she loses, including an ex-boyfriend. And then I I think 
um, the, the epigraph, which comes from Marilyn Robinson. Um, just want to make sure I get it right. Mm. Um, reads, for to wish for a hand on one's hair is all but to feel it. So whatever we may lose, very craving gives it back to us again. And so I think the book meditates on craving and how losing something and then spending time with it in your imagination or longing for something you don't have and spending time with it in your imagination means that your, your loss or the things that you don't have become a kind of ghostly presence in your life. So I think the book is thinking about all of those things through this figure of Kate Bishop, mostly in her 20s through her early 30s. Um, I wrote and published, I think, around 20 short stories as I was thinking about putting together a collection. And I was really fascinated with and in love with the short story form. And I wanted to explore all the different things it could do. I think, Jason, you've mentioned liking Amy Hempel before. Is that right? Correct. I, I love Amy Hempel, too, as you probably guessed from reading the book. Um, I love Alice Monroe. I love the people I named earlier. And those writers are all doing very different things with the story, mm-hmm. the story form. And so my own story is somewhere very short, like a prose poem, just a paragraph, somewhere like 30 pages long. I think of those almost as different genres or forms. You can do very different things with those sorts of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some stories were fabulous, some were realist. So it took me a while to see how a book of stories would come together that would feel to my mind cohesive enough and satisfying enough to a reader that it made sense to collect them and to give them to people in that form. So I gave a draft of the collection to some friends a few years ago um, and that collection wasn't explicitly linked. Mm -hmm. And um, a couple of those friends said that they really liked it as is and maybe I could pull in some other stories. And then two friends said, it's interesting, some of these characters are very similar. What if you made them more similar into the same character or made them a little bit more different. And I thought, you know, I really love collections linked by character, like Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Strout, The Beggar Made by Alice Monroe. Um, it's actually a novel about We the Animals by Justin Torres, which I think actually began as a story collection. And so I thought I, I wanted to try that. I wanted to try exploring a life through a constellation of stories. And if it had been a novel, um, I think um, I think the novel form would have maybe necessitated some different moves. Mm-hmm. So um, because it was a collection of stories, a sort of loose constellation, I could just choose interesting moments and shine a light on them um, and then move on. And, and I love that sort of quickness um, and the flexibility that the linked story form allows. I love novels as well. Um, and sometimes novels are elliptical and sometimes they hop around in interesting ways, but um, I think they often feel more cohesive in a way that just makes you think about plot and character a little bit differently. Excellent. Thank you so much. And we'll come back to some um, questions of formatting later, but I do want to say, uh, yes, I love Amy Hempel. She's been on this program before and she's good friends with uh, my friend and former creative writing teacher, Jill McCorkle, who um, has also been on this program before. So listeners, check those out if you haven't yet. Um, But Kara, let's now dive into the title story, You Never Get It Back. This book starts on New Year's Eve, 1999, uh, right around then. Some of our listeners may be too young uh, to remember that date. Why is this setting significant? Um, I love the idea of beginning there because um, 
you know, it felt like such an important moment. It was about to become the year 2000, which felt like <laughs> the future. And people at the time were also worried about what was called Y2K, the idea that computers weren't programmed for this movement of the future and who knew what sort of glitches might arise. So I thought it'd be fun to set um, a story um, on that night, that, that New Year's Eve. Um, and it's a kind of momentous night in the character's life as well um, for the, you know, for the world in, in one way and for the character in an intimate way, you know, a very different sort of um, momentous occasion. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but um, she meets up with um, her former college roommate. They're both in their early 20s. And her former college roommate, Esme, is a lot more privileged than she is and invites her to this party that, that Esme's ex-boyfriend is throwing um, with some of his Harvard Law School friends. Um, and Kate goes because she's having a fight with her boyfriend. She was initially going to spend her seat with him. But instead, she meets up with Esme and they go to this party. Yeah, thank you. And we'll return to um, some of that later, but I'll make sure to throw a spoiler alert before those questions come up. But uh, where were you on New Year's Eve 1999? I was actually just thinking about that question. Um, I am almost certain I would actually probably have to do a little fact checking to make sure I have the year right. But I'm almost certain I was at a friend's parents ski cabin in Vermont, Ah. um, which sounds really fancy and is really fancy. <laughs> um, I grew up in the kind of family where, you know, it, we, we couldn't um, afford to even go skiing at the big mountains, let alone having have like a second house. Um, but I um, met friends in college who, um, you know, had amazing to me things like, like this. Um, and it was a group of friends actually I met through my college roommate. Um, and um, they're just like a very funny um, and smart group of people. And we had so much fun. I remember there was a hot tub um, outside. We went outside while it was snowing and we sat in the hot tub in the Vermont night, which is just really black. You can see the stars really well as the snow fell and sort of wondered, are the computers going to turn off the world? <laughs> but a, a very, um, a party, but a very different kind of party than the one my character attends. Yeah, it's so funny to think back on it that everyone thought there was going to be this doomsday scenario just for a one changing into a two. Um, Crazy stuff. Well, um, thank you. I am asking this next question due to personal interest, and I think you just started answering it a little bit, but Kate uh, is working in southern Vermont at the opening of this story, and since we stick with Kate, uh, Vermont comes up several more times in other stories. Do you know this area well? Can you tell us about it? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think of um, Kate Bishop, my character, as being a little bit like um, Nick Adams was for Hemingway. Um, you know, this character who is sort of a stand-in in some ways and um, very different in others. So some of her experiences are mine and some aren't. Um, but um, I decided um, that she would grow up in Southern Vermont because I do know the place really well. It's a really interesting place and one I came to understand better after I left it. Um, growing up, I thought that, you know, when you chose a career you were asking yourself, do I want to be a glass blower or do I want to be 
a ceramicist or do I want to be a painter or do I want to be a teacher? <laughs> um, not knowing that a lot of those first things aren't um, things that might financially sustain a life typically um, because it's an area that has so many artists. Um, it's also an area that I think a lot of people move to in the 70s, often from New York um, as part of the kind of back to the land movement. So um, it's a place that really values the arts, really values education and books. So I feel very lucky to have grown up um, with those values sort of held by the community around me. Um, it's also a very rural place. So I grew up on a, a private dirt road. It wasn't maintained by the state. We all pooled our money, all the neighbors to maintain the road ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if it snowed too much, you were just stuck until someone with a truck was leaving. And then maybe they would give you a ride um, in the truck, you know, to, to town. So um, good place to do a lot of daydreaming and, and reading. Yeah, great. What are the like the big towns in southern Vermont, or are there big towns? <laughs> um, there's a town called Brattleboro, which I definitely thought of as a big town. Yeah. It's maybe thirteen or fifteen thousand people, so it's not really. Mm -hmm. But to me, that was the big city. Mm -hmm. um, and then Northampton in Massachusetts is forty-five minutes away, and so to me, that was really the big city. That was the town where I I went to college. It's definitely not a big city, but <laughs> to sixteen-year-old me, I went to college um, early. Um, mm -hmm. It was it seemed huge. Yeah, great, thank you. Yeah, and to tie these kind of threads together for myself personally, in New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety-nine, I believe I was camping out at a fish concert. Um, <laughs> Everglades, um, which was an interesting place to be. We had no computers around us anywhere, so Y2K seemed kind of like a joke at that juncture. Um, but I want to return to this title story in a moment. But first, I want to ask you about the formatting of this collection. As I warned earlier, uh, why divide your collection into three sections with an unsectioned story as an introduction? Um. Well, I'm so curious. Did you have a hypothesis about why that was? Um, you know, I have many hypotheses about it, especially when I see things divided into threes. Um, but I'm curious as to what your answer is. I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm wondering if, um, if my logic will be a logic that any readers arrive at. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about the book having kind of three movements. Mm -hmm. And to me, the, the collection with these three sections, each section ends in a kind of pivotal moment for the character. And then she moves into a new sort of place in her life in the next section. Mm -hmm. And then that first story I met lost the other day imagines the narrator being given um, note cards, three note cards with his or her losses listed mm -hmm. on them. And um, I was sort of imagining those three sections as being a little bit like the three note cards, mm -hmm. a catalog of what's been lost, as well as what new things gained. Because I think as we move through the world, we inevitably lose things. That's what it means to be in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but we also create something new at the same time. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. Um, and of course, I, you know, I thought along those lines and I was thinking of other things um, because I'm, you know, a literary person and I overthink everything. I'm like, is this like Dante or what are we doing here? But um, I, I thought it was really great. Um, but back to your title story, you never get it back. You mentioned Hemingway earlier. Uh, is this title a reference to a Hemingway story? It is. Um... 
And just to circle back for one quick minute, I love that you bring up Dante. I, I teach Dante. I love Dante. Mm-hmm. And that, that idea of threes, I think, is just so appealing. There's something really balanced and compelling about it. Um, beginning, middle, end, three things. Um, so, yeah, so you, you Never Get It Back um, is um, taken from a Hemingway story. It's a quotation from Hills Like White Elephants, um, which many people have probably read it's um, a short story um, that's mainly told from a kind of objective third person. So you're observing a young man and a young woman talking, and you come to understand that they're talking about whether she's going to have an abortion, which he would like for her to do. She seems not to want to do, although she seems ready to agree to it um, to make him happy. Um, and so in my story, um, I imagine a a literature seminar in which students are talking about a number of different short stories, including Hills Like White Elephants. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, so my final two questions involve um, more about this story. And as I said, I would do earlier, uh, this is a spoiler warning. <laughs> um, if you haven't read this collection yet um you may want to pause here i'll give you a couple of seconds to get that going um and then we will come back to it but of course we're not going to spoil the rest of the collection for you because i know that your curiosity has already peaked listeners um all right spoiler warning over we're going to dive in here so kara my final questions are uh about the men in kate's life in this first story and first i want to ask about michael who is her boyfriend uh this guy is obviously kind of a jerk who's not only racist as he uses the n-word when cursing a parking attendant because he was upset about the price of parking um but he is also um, sort of ashamed, embarrassed, reluctant, whatever you want to say, to bring Kate around his Korean friends. Um, why does Kate allow herself to be treated this way? And what does this say about her character? Yeah, Michael to me is a fascinating and really important character. Um, so he's Korean American. Um, he's a character who you know, I think is really funny and smart and honest. He's been really wounded by the world. Um, He's experienced racism himself. Um, And, you know, he and Kate, I think, share some things in common because she's not unwounded by the world too in some different ways. Um, And I think she's drawn to him for all of those reasons. Mm -hmm. And um, I think at one point she thinks about how her more privileged roommate, Esme, is drawn to men she can control. She always wants to choose what her boyfriends are wearing and orchestrate what they will do and how they will act and perhaps even who they'll become. Whereas Kate is drawn to men she can't control. Mm -hmm. And she thinks, well, maybe that's because um, I'm a scientist and I'm, I'm drawn to experiments. But I think we come to see in that story and in others that there's something too, perhaps about her own life, um, her own anger, her own experiences with violence, um, that mean that maybe Michael, I think, can understand her in a way some other characters can't. Mm. Um, and I think she has a, a really deep sympathy for him, even when he does things you know that are, are really awful. Like for example, um, that moment you point to when he says something very, very racist mm-hmm. um, to a parking attendant who's black. Um, 
And so, you know, for me, the most compelling characters in fiction are ones who you can't reduce or sum up. Mm -hmm. um, and that's certainly true about the people in my own life. Anyone I know well is someone I can't reduce or sum up. And so to me, Michael is such a character um, mm -hmm. and hopefully Kate is such a character as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Kara. And finally, um, Paul, who is Kate's friend, Esme's ex-boyfriend, who you referred to earlier, uh, whom Kate and Esme are staying with as they attend this party in Boston for um, New Year's Eve 1999-2000. Paul, who is referred to as, quote, one of the good ones, unquote, rapes Kate at the end of this story. Uh, Kate, who tells Paul no, but then wonders to herself whether she really wants this to happen, who even as she is being raped, describes Paul as a, quote, sweet, gentle man, unquote. Uh, what does this reaction of Kate's in the moment that she is being raped say about her character and why is she thinking about whether or not she wants to be labeled as a victim in the moment as opposed to, say, screaming or punching him in the face? <laughs> That's a really great question. Um, I shared the story with a workshop and people felt sort of so worked up about the ending that um, in workshop two women actually ended up standing up and yelling at each other <laughs> about their various interpretations of the end, mm -hmm. um, which hopefully means the story is, is a success. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so the end of the story, Kate ends up sleeping in the same bed with Paul, someone who's you know, she's drawn to in some ways, um, but she says no when he asks if he can kiss her earlier in the evening, mm -hmm. um, in large part because she has a boyfriend, not because she doesn't want him to. Um, and, you know, the story's set in 1999, which I think is a moment before we have maybe some of um, the language around these things that we have now in terms of consent and the idea of empty consent, what it means to say yes when that's not in fact what you want to be saying. Um, and so it was a, you know, a moment that I remember as kind of a, a time um, that could be a bit confusing for everyone. Um, and um, Kate and Paul end up sleeping in the same bed and then um, she wakes up and essentially he's, you know, initiated a sexual interaction with her and then starts having sex with her, even though she says no. And it's a moment that I imagine she walks away from understanding as a sexual assault and that he might walk away from, even though it clearly is a sexual assault, he could conceivably walk away from it thinking that in fact, she had maybe, you know, actually liked him. There was something there. Maybe, you know, the no wasn't really a no. Um, I don't know because my characters are a little mysterious to me as well <laughs> um, as people are in, in my life, as I am to myself. Um, but in that moment, I think Kate is recognizing the complexity of her own reaction you know, she's drawn to him. If she didn't have a boyfriend, maybe this is something she would consent to, um, but she's not consenting. Um, and, you know, she, I think we see, has a kind of deep sympathy for people um, and recognizes their complexities. So she knows that in some situations he is sweet and, and gentle, and he's also making this awful choice, this awful mistake that they will both need to live with after this is over. Um, so I, it's a moment that I hope has a lot of complexity, makes people sort of really think about these questions of desire and consent, um, who the characters are, and maybe also how we all conduct ourselves in the real world too.
Yeah, it was a moment that was very real, very complete and very complex, um, as you said. And I think um, that that's what made this story um, so effective and what makes the entire collection so powerful. Uh, Thank you, Kara. And listeners, we've only spoken about the first two stories of 13, um, though we did allude to Amy Hempel and maybe you'll run into another story that reminds you of her in the collection later on. But I know listeners have heard enough to make them want to go out and read these two stories and the 11 others that follow, and I cannot wait to put it in their hands. Listeners, I've been speaking with Kara Blue Adams, author of the award-winning collection, You Never Get It Back, which is published by our friends at the University of Iowa Press. Kara, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Kara Blue Adams for joining me. Copies of You Never Get It Back can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.